You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hi, and welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. Today's session, Alcohol and Opioid Use in the Time of COVID-19. Our panel today is Drs. Lynette Reeb and Annabel Mead. The recording date was April 9th, 2020. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenters' homes and without professional equipment. We hope you enjoy. Thanks for joining us. Hi, it's great to be here. Um, I'm uh, practicing social distancing, so I'm here in my home on Bowen Island in British Columbia. And uh, my dear friend Annabelle Mead, who's my co-presenter, is in her home uh, in Vancouver. So we're going to try to give you um, a joint session here. I'll be uh, starting out with the more didactic section on alcohol, and then we'll answer questions. Annabelle will take the lead on that. And then I will uh, do a more didactic section on opioids. And again, then we'll have questions, and Annabelle will take the lead on those. So any vignettes that you have, that would be great. Um, I'm a clinical associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at UBC. I'm certified in addiction medicine in the U.S. and Canada, and uh, I help to um, co-create the Addiction Medicine Fellowship that's now out of the BCCSU here. Um, I've done addiction medicine for 25 years. Also, my master's was in the area of pain neurophysiology, and I um, am the medical director at um, CBI Health Center, a multidisciplinary pain clinic. And I work doing a bit of consult work at the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic at St. Paul's Hospital, as well as work at the Orchard Recovery Center on Bowen. Annabelle, do you want to give yeah. a little bit of your background? I, too, am very happy to be here this evening. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Annabelle Mead. I've been practicing addiction medicine for some 20-plus years now, and I have special interests in um, uh, women's recovery, uh, pain management, uh, concurrent psychiatric disorders, and most recently, um, perinatal addiction medicine. Um, my clinical practice is predominantly through the St. Paul's Hospital Addiction Medicine Consult Service, an inpatient service, and some outpatient work. Um, I also am the house doctor for New Dawn Recovery House, which is a women's residential support recovery session run by Crystal Society. And I am now also the program director for the BCCSU Addiction Medicine Fellowship Program. Okay. Great. Okay, so I'm just going to share my slides. Share my screen here and we'll get started. All right. Great. All right. So um, alcohol use and opiate use in the time of COVID-19. Annabelle and I uh, are not getting paid by anyone except UBC CPD, and we haven't received any money from pharmaceutical companies and device companies. Aside from Annabelle's done a couple of talks for Indivior, but uh, she will only talk about guideline-based recommendations, and I have done some talks for WorkSafe BC. Otherwise, all of our work is clinical work. Uh, please note the protocols that we are going to share in this presentation are really suggestions only. They don't take the place of good clinical judgment, and we don't assume any liability, nor does UBC CPD for these protocols. Um, I'm not going to be covering toxidromes, uh, so things that you would see in the, in the eMERGE or in ICU uh, for management. So the objectives tonight are to be able to highlight key issues regarding alcohol and opioid use while physically distancing during the COVID-19 pandemic, and we'll be sharing some cases with you 
And if you guys have cases, again, just to bring them forward during the question period. We'll review assessment and treatment protocols that are adapted for telemedicine, and we'll list some temporary changes to the National and Provincial Controlled Substances Act. We'll explore online resources for patients and for clinicians. So hopefully that will make this hour worth your while. So just to begin, with COVID-19 pandemic protocols around the world, there's really some new issues that can arise, as well as exacerbation of long-standing issues that uh, can come up within a family or within a social situation. Um, people may stockpile medications and other substances and thus have more availability. So you might buy usually one bottle of wine a week when you come home on a Friday night, but sometimes now people have 20 bottles of wine in their house and they uh, don't have their usual routine. So people sometimes can use more than they had uh, previously. Also, supply chains can get cut off abruptly, putting people into withdrawal or um, making people uh, use alternatives. So um, non-medical supplies of uh, medications as well can be quite toxic and tainted when other supplies that would go into making those have been disrupted. So people, let's say, that are used to going to a certain um, uh, dealer to get a medic, uh, drug off the street, now they have to go to somebody else and they don't know um, that supplier, that source, and it could be quite adulterated. Also, people may turn to non-beverage alcohol and non-medical substances to relieve both pain and withdrawal. And there's also psychosocial issues. So if you're a person experiencing homelessness or domestic violence or sex trade worker, you know, all of these things put you at much elevated risk to contract the virus and to spread the virus. So we really need to help our most vulnerable in, at this time. Also, what could have been um, part of people's social circles sharing uh, paraphernalia has become a much more dangerous thing to do. So to share a crack pipe or to share cigarettes or vaping equipment or to pass around a bottle of wine or share a glass, all of these things are vastly more dangerous. The National Institute of Drug Abuse in the United States, NIDA, has, um, just gonna, sorry, minimize this here. NIDA has um, made a few key points at this time. Because it attacks the lungs, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19 can be especially serious threat to those who smoke tobacco, marijuana, or who vape. Especially the vaping, we know, um, especially vaping oils can be very hazardous and can add to your uh, risk in terms of survival. People with opioid use disorders and methamphetamine use disorders may also be vulnerable due to the drug's effects on respiratory and pulmonary health. Additionally, individuals with a substance use disorder are more likely to experience homelessness or incarceration than those in the general population. And these circumstances pose a unique challenge regarding the transmission of the virus. As we all know, in the US, Rikers Island and other places, and in Canada, the, um, when you have institutionalized individuals uh, who cannot leave and self-isolate outside of that institution, uh, the risk really goes up. Okay, so um, with digital access, uh, we can get care to underserviced populations. We can keep the patients and clinicians physically distant. We can facilitate validated tools to detect substance use disorders. So one of the uh, things that's been shown is that clinicians actually will use validated tools more if they have them preloaded 
in the tool that they're interviewing the patient with. So it can actually facilitate the use of validated tools and picking up screening and uh, assessment um, cues. There's also novel biomarkers. Gait, speech, and breathalyzer tests have all been integrated into some of uh, people's smartphones and things. There's wearable sensors that can be used uh, that can help with medication adherence, relapse prevention, and real-time interventions. So for example, tracking visits to the liquor store, collecting breathalyzer information, and then a counselor or an MD or NP doing an intervention. These kind of things are starting to be done. Right now in the pandemic, most people aren't set up for this, but this is kind of the wave of the future to be able to use these going forward. So where are we right now? Where should we start? Well, when you're assessing a patient, you want to first make that diagnosis. So you can check their Pharmanet when you're online with them over the phone, looking at your EMR, uh, doing a video conference. You want to interview them, if you can, face-to-face -face through the uh, video link, but if not, at least over the phone. Over the video link, you'll be able to do some examinations, and I will talk about a few of these things in a minute. Also, the screening tools. You can use the Audit, the DAS, the CRAFT, DSM-5. Um, if you're unfamiliar with these, you can ask questions about them, but I've given references, and all, most of these tools are on the BCCSU website. Also, substance use or substance use disorder is something you'll want to determine. Is this person within uh, low-risk drinking guidelines, for example, or are they drinking above it in the, and has hazardous drinking, or have they, do they have a full-blown substance use disorder? Do they have a pain disorder? How functional are they? Is there physiologic dependence? And if so, is there a withdrawal syndrome? And how severe is that? Is it life-threatening for them? What's the patient's circumstance? Are they uh, in a physical living situation where they're under threat or others present? Are they mentally and physically healthy? Do they have access to medications? Is there domestic violence? Do they have a safe supply or safe equipment? So all of these things kind of need a bit of time for assessment. So let's go through the two substances. We'll start with alcohol. I wanted to remind folks of the Canadian Lowers Drinking Guidelines that apply for people 18 to 65. First of all, many patients don't know what a standard drink is. Many patients don't realize that one shot or one and a half ounces of hard liquor is the same as a small glass of wine, five ounces, or one bottle of beer or one cooler. And um, so if we look at the guidelines, it's zero if it's contraindicated. Most of you will know contraindications, pregnancy, breastfeeding, if you're on um, medications for depression or bipolar disorder or um, on anti-epileptic medications or if you're on, um, have um, uh, liver failure, these kind of things, um, anticoagulants, there's all these uh, conditions where it might be zero, or if you have a um, severe substance use disorder. Uh, for women, less than 10 drinks a week, no more than two per day, and rarely three, giving yourself two days a week where you can wash out. And for men, that's 15 per week, less than three per day, rarely four, and giving two days a week of washout. That's if it's not contraindicated for you. And if you're over 65, the new Canadian guidelines on alcohol use disorder in older adults has come out uh, in the Canadian uh, Geriatric Journal this month. And that's about half of these guidelines. So for women, it would be five a week, or men, about seven a week. Okay. Now, the risk 
of people moving from beverage alcohol to non-beverage alcohol will increase if that supply chain of beer, wine, or liquor is stopped, and if people are heavy users. Um, also, if the stores close, stop stocking, or stop delivering, that can all affect that supply chain. The other thing that can affect supply chain is if other family members use up your supply when you're at home, or they cut you off if you're the user and they think uh, they, that you shouldn't be drinking. So all of these things can cause people then to shift. Also, prohibited costs uh, can be prohibitive of um, liquor, and sometimes people will turn to other substances, especially if things are gouging. So um, just to know that um, with isopropyl alcohol or hand sanitizer, all you'd need to drink is about half of these bottles before you'd uh, end up so ill that you might uh, have an emergency room or maybe even ICU visit. So hand sanitizer and rubbing uh, alcohol have isopropyl alcohol, so just 200 mils is that toxic dose that can get, make you have a coma, especially if it's mixed with an MAOI. Antifreeze contains propylene glycol, ethylene glycol, and methanol, and these toxic byproducts really build up over 12 hours, so people can look more and more impaired, uh, even though they're not continuing to drink, and you can get multi-origin failure and with methanol blindness. Rice wine for cooking is also something that um, sometimes people turn to because of the lower cost but very high sodium content, so it puts people at much higher risk of seizure. If available, when, if people can't stop non-beverage alcohol, even in, when alcohol is presented, sometimes managed alcohol programs are needed, and some communities have these. Um, again, the idea here is if people are at home, if there's a way to get them uh, alcohol instead of non-beverage alcohol, and ideally to help wean them down and stabilize them. So what does alcohol withdrawal look like? Most of you are familiar with these points on the screen of what it looks like. Just to know that tremor, particularly hand tremor, uh, flap, you can have the patient hold their hands out, and if they're flapping, that is the best predictor of impending seizure. So if people, the key is, is, is that it's rare for somebody to have a seizure if they're drinking uh, seven drinks or less. So that's kind of the cutoff mark. If they're eight or more, if they stop cold turkey, they could have a seizure. If they've had a head injury or previous seizure, previous DTs, then sometimes they can seize at a lower level. So you'd want them down to three or four drinks a day, and it's very rare to have them seize, even with a head injury or seizure disorder, if they're drinking daily at that and can stop. So really, um, if there's an issue that supply chain might be cut off or the person's at risk, you might want to see if you can get your patient down, if they're drinking a 26er or a 40-pounder, you know, just to try to get them down to just uh, eight, eight drinks a day or less, um, it, especially if they've had um, head injury or seizure, then you want them down to four or five. So lowering reduces that risk of seizure. Also, the World Health Organization says that you don't really have to have abstinence. They've done supported studies that show if you just bring people down from, let's say, 15 drinks a day down to seven drinks a day, you get a lot of improvement in health, a lot of different health outcomes. Or if they can go from 10 down to four, you know, this can be helpful. So we don't just have to think of abstinence only. Um, so if they're drinking um, less than seven or seven, they can usually stop cold turkey, as I mentioned. So we want to consider residential detox. If the patient wants to come off and they're drinking over eight drinks a day and they've been unsuccessful with tapering, and I'm going to talk to you about some tapering strategies, 
and if they've had adverse consequences and that those adverse consequences outweigh the risk of possibly getting COVID by going into residential facilities. We want to keep people out of residential facilities and detox facilities and um, uh, hospital facilities as much as possible. But there will be some people who need to, like if they've had seizure disorders, withdrawal seizures, um, DTs, suicidal, psychosis, violence when they're withdrawing, they're pregnant, or they have super unstable social situations, then these are uh, situations where you may want to consider residential detox. So how do we help people down? So alcohol lowering cessation, is it right for this person? You have to see their situation based on what we talked about on the initial assessment slide. We want to remember that alcohol, one standard drink is metabolized one an hour. So we want people to drink an hour apart if they can and pour their own drinks uh, and use a measuring device like a shot glass. Alternate alcoholic and non-alcoholic drinks eat food and rehydrate with water prior to alcohol, that'll make it metabolize slower. And if you're having some trouble with this, they can keep a drinking diary. You can call them a few days later and see what their pattern is. Um, you can di help distract with other activities. And there's lots of online support. There's Smart Recovery. All the community health centers have gone uh, virtual. And there's AA meetings online. And there's private, if people want a more posh uh, support, one-on-one -on -one with counseling, there's WAGON and other public and private uh, support networks. In hospital and in residential treatment facilities, to help guide medication protocols, we use something called the CYAR. Most of you would be familiar with this who do any inpatient medicine at all. And it's a nurse uh, symptom-driven protocol. It decreases morbidity and mortality, and it's cost-effective. So this is the protocol that's there. I just wanted you to be familiar with that, giving diazepam or lorazepam especially lorazepam if uh, they're elderly or have liver disease or you don't know their liver enzymes. Um, if you're admitting them into that setting, just make sure you don't use parenteral olanzapine and lorazepam together because um, you know, could precipitate seizures. But I wanted to share um, this uh, other tool that we have. It was called the PAUSE. This is a screening tool to decide who may have a really rough detox and need a CWA protocol in hospital, or who can we um, safely detox, usually without benzodiazepines, or if we're going to use benzos, we can use them in the community. So this is um, the pre prediction of alcohol withdrawal severity scale, the pause. And if you score four or above, that's an indication that you may really run into trouble during your detox, and you should probably uh, be in hospital or residential care setting. And if you're three or less, then it's likely safe to be in the community. It has about um, a 93% positive predictive value, uh, and it's been validated. It's on the BCCSU website, and I'll give you links to all those websites in, later in the talk. So home detox protocols. You want to ensure the patient is physically dependent. You don't want to be giving medications to people who don't have a physiologic dependence on alcohol. And if they're drinking six or more drinks and they have a tremor, they must drink daily to alleviate their symptoms. And they haven't been abstinent more than two days in the last two weeks. If they can be two days abstinent, you know, they likely don't need a detox protocol. Ensure the patient is safe at home, so their pause is like less than four. Ideally, to have a reliable caregiver with them and no access to alcohol and no history of seizure or delirium. No violence. 
and you want to ensure the patient's not just ingested alcohol. So this is uh, if you're not going to try a taper. We can taper at one to two drinks a day without any trouble, no matter how high you start. Almost nobody is going to seize if you taper by one to two drinks a day. But these is for people who can't get down. They can't do that taper. So uh, then you can try one of these protocols, okay? Safest is likely tapering. As long as the person who's controlling the alcohol for the taper doesn't, isn't at risk of violence. So here's a fixed dose protocol for you. So again, no history of seizure or delirium. Scoring over eight on a CWAT, you want to do that score to begin with. And I've given you the link of, to uh, call up that protocol. Um, you can have the pharmacy deliver the meds, and you can video link with the patient and observe their dosing if you want. Uh, so it's diazepam, 20 milligrams, every one to two hours for three doses. You stop if they're sedated or they have slurred speech or if their respiratory rate goes under 10. And these are things that you can count with them over the, over, online or even over the phone. Relative contraindications for diazepam itself is if they're elderly, they uh, have liver disease, respiratory disease, um, and alternative medication is lorazepam, okay? And that's two milligrams every one to two hours for three doses, and it prevents Wernicke-Korsakoff. You can give thymine 250 milligrams IM three to five days, but that's impractical when they're in isolation. Oral thymine does not work hardly at all if you look at the literature, but we give 100 milligrams or more. Annabelle often gives more. She can discuss that. Another uh, home-based withdrawal management protocol, fixed-dose protocol, would be diazepam 10 milligrams every six hours for four doses, then five milligrams every six hours for eight doses. Again, contraindicated if they're elderly, liver disease, or respiratory disease. Um, and you can witness the first dose, reassess two hours later, adjust if needed, or you can use the lorazepam protocol if they're elderly, liver disease, respiratory disease. Um, again, caregiver um, can uh, expl explain if they're getting sedated, and if they uh, relapse to alcohol, you want to stop the protocol for sure. Now, other protocols that are safe to use um, in this setting would be if a patient uh, um, is uh, gabapentinoids. So gabapentin and pregabalin can both be used. I'm just giving the gabapentin protocol here. Uh, so 300 milligrams every six hours for one to three days, and then every eight hours for the next day, then every 12 hours, and then just at night. And that is for detoxification. And there's some evidence that may be better than benzodiazepines and less sedating and uh, suppress people's cravings uh, and drinking. And you can continue this protocol as a maintenance therapy, which you don't want to do for benzodiazepines. So there's some big advantages, and I'll show you um, uh, one of the supportive studies. So you, people who've had seizures, though, or delirium, you wouldn't use a gabapentin protocol. You'd, you'd want them to go inpatient. So follow-up with home detox, um, ideally see them every day through the video link and initially uh, load them enough to prevent seizures, and they may need a benzo taper. And after that benzo taper, you can use trazodone or triptyline or gabapentin to help control sleep. And look at their relapse triggers, review their strengths, and try it again. Remember that alcohol, the lack of sleep at one month of sobriety can predict relapse, so you need to treat their insomnia. If the patient's having drinking dreams and nightmares, that REM sleep in the first five months actually predicts continued sobriety. So just encourage them that this is actually good. Their brain's kind of working things out. 
And in those who have severe obstructive sleep apnea, just two drinks can increase the risk of motor vehicle accidents by five times. So you need to warn them about that. Now, I've included medications to treat the actual underlying alcohol use disorder. So I've given you some information here on naltrexone, 50 milligrams a day. This is a medication that can be used while the patient is still drinking. They have to be opiate-free for seven to 10 days from short-acting or two to three weeks from long-acting. This is really the safest drug that we have to use with little monitoring. Ideally, you do their liver function test before you start and two weeks after, but in the, the risk is so low of liver failure that um, in, in a setting like this, uh, their risk with alcohol is much higher. People can be binge drinking and use this, um, or they can be abstinent and use it. Gabapentin, again, 600Q8 can be uh, helpful to help reduce the risk of um, craving and relapse to drinking or to drinking at high levels. It can be dangerous to use that if they're drinking at high levels, so you do need to be careful. Also, it can work in some sleep apnea. So this is just um, the most recent um, uh, randomized clinical trial on gabapentin just published in March of 2020 in JAMA. So really supporting, especially in people who have high alcohol withdrawal symptoms, 41% of them had total absence on gabapentin versus 1% in the placebo arm. So it's the latest trial out. I also wanted to give a shout out to the latest Cochrane review that they have on 12-step programs so that Alcoholics Anonymous uh, now they have enough data, they didn't used to, but the, there's enough data now to show high-quality evidence that manualized Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step facilitation interventions are more efficacious than other established treatments, such as CBT, for increasing abstinence. And among patients with the worst prognostic, prognostic characteristics, so the highest drinkers for the longest um, and with the most withdrawal symptoms, that AA and 12-step facilitation has a higher potential cost savings than motivational enhancement therapy. So we'll stop here and take some questions and before we move on to the opioid section. Thanks very much, Lynette. And uh, I've got a number of questions, some that are related to a part of the presentation that's coming up, so I'll pause on those. Um, and a couple that are specifically COVID-related. Um, so one is, any suggestions for working with individuals who refuse to self-isolate during their addictions? And you spoke to those, uh, those times at home when someone may want to go out to get their alcohol. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I can probably speak to that. So I think the most important thing is to have conversations with the, with, um, the individual as to what the reasons for the inability to self-isolate and what can we offer to um, mitigate that. So, um, you know, that could include a whole lot of things, uh, including support from um, family members, um, um, outreach workers, peer support workers, um, uh, so all of those psychosocial interventions. And then secondly, um, uh, managing with medications. So is it um, that they're unwilling or unable to um, engage in withdrawal management? Um, and for many people, that is the case. They're just not, um, uh, you know, particularly without normal support, being able to 
um, think about doing that. So then we can think about um, using safe supply. And we're going to hear a bit more about safe supply later on, but Lonette already mentioned it in the alcohol setting with um, um, the, the ability to prescribe um, managed alcohol. We have this ability for folks that are living in the downtown east side and um, people that are homeless or in um, uh, SROs or precariously housed um, and with significant other comorbidities, you know, uh, psychiatric in particular, but also medical, they are at highest risk, I think, of, um, of uh, firstly bad, bad outcomes from um, COVID and um, more likely to contract the illness. So um, if, you know, withdrawal management uh, is not an option, then we might want to look at how we can help with um, safe supply. Thank you. Um, as far as I know, um, in terms of um, prescribing managed alcohol, and we can actually write prescriptions for this now. We need to do that through the through VCH and the opioid um, outreach team are able to uh, take prescriptions and have them filled. Um, and we'll be giving you the uh, links to the, the phone numbers for contacting them. Um, but that's available seven days a week, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., I believe. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, again, related to these current times, um, how would you manage people who don't have access to video um, so that you can actually have a virtual conference with them? or even access to a phone. Yeah, so again, um, our um, overdose um, outreach team can come in, meet with the patient and use their um, uh, uh, devices and uh, facilitate a, um, a telehealth um, uh, consultation. Um, you could also look at other peer support workers or family members in supporting them. And that would, I assume involve uh, a very careful pre-assessment by whoever it is that's contacting with the patient. For mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, There's a couple of questions that are specific to naltrexone. Um, the first is um, for a patient who's having frequent uh, alcohol withdrawals and is taking trazodone for insomnia, is it safe to start naltrexone or is there another medicine you should uh, be considering to reduce the drinking? I think there's very few contraindications in terms of other medications for naltrexone. The only absolute contraindication, obviously, is someone that's on opiate therapy for some other reason. Uh, and obviously, naltrexone is a full new opioid blocker. So it will um, it's very dangerous, actually, to use in someone that has high opioid tolerance and takes opiates regularly. Um, apart from that, um, Lonette, correct me if I'm wrong, there really aren't any other medications that are contraindications to using with naltrexone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it and just in people who have fulminant liver failure, you would want to use this. And ideally, you know, if you knew their liver function ahead of time. But even a moderate elevation of liver enzymes, and for some, drinking it may be more of a risk than even if they have very high elevation of their liver function tests. So it's quite an inert substance, and it's very, very rare to have complications with this. Mm -hmm. I usually start just at like a quarter of a tablet for a day or two and then half a tablet for a day or two and then the full tablet just to make sure that they don't, you know, they haven't been taking something we don't know about in opioid. And some patients don't know that like Tylenol 1 over the counter has codeine in it. They don't understand that that's an opioid. So sometimes you really have to walk them through what an opioid is before you start that medicine. Mm 
And just just on the naltrexone dosing, um, sometimes people might find some benefit, but not great benefit from 50 milligrams a day, which is the recommended dosing. We can increase to 75 or 100 milligrams daily as well before before marking it as a treatment failure. There was another question on naltrexone, but I'll maybe get back to that. But one that I think is quite relevant to anybody, especially who's in a rural area, um, what if as you mentioned, the safest place um, is to be a rehab center for some people. What if access to a rehab center is not possible, especially in more rural areas? Um, that's why we did give you these protocols um, to try to make it more safe. But just to know that almost all of the publicly funded detox centers and treatment centers are still running. They may have slightly reduced capacity because they need to socially distance. And there are some of the private uh, centers that do take some public, um, again, that may have cabins uh, and be more isolated. Uh, and they can isolate a, a person if they get sick. So there, there are some adjustments that are being made. Hmm. I often find it hard to really predict, even though we have these tools such as the pause uh, and our, you know, full assessment up front, to really figure out who's going to run into trouble or not. Um, I think in this setting where you've got um, very limited access to the preferred inpatient setting, you can um, start with trying a home detox, and if it doesn't go well um, with, you know, close follow-up, then obviously one can always suggest the patients go to the emergency department and then have, you know, perhaps even just one day uh, in hospital or even in an emergency department just to get on medications and to, to stabilize and then home again with a plan. And, you know, sometimes it's surprising. You wouldn't think uh, just education would help much in certain settings. Like I had a patient last week who he came in and he was, um, he's a tradesman and through his 20s, he would go to the pub after work with his friends and drink and eat. And that was his Every day after work, he owned his own business. Um, and so he, he would drink between 13 and 26 ounces of hard liquor. And he just had an amazing tolerance, and he didn't run into any trouble with that except socially. Uh, but he drank at that level for a good 15 years. And then he had an injury. Uh, and then he was home, and his drinking escalated, so he was drinking 40 ounces a day. And interestingly, he didn't have a lot of withdrawal symptoms if he wouldn't stop the next day, but he said he, he drank it all at night so he could go to sleep. The problem was, as alcohol came out of his system during the night, he would wake up because it's activating as it leaves the system. So I, I talked to him about this, that if you want a better sleep, which was his goal, to try to drink less and so you don't have to wake up and pee all night and so you don't have to have that activation at night. And also that he is at risk of a withdrawal seizure, even if it's a day or two later, uh, drinking at that level if his supply chain got cut off during COVID-19 quarantine. So he, just with that education, he was able to bring down to, taper down just over a week to 13 ounces down to even eight ounces a day when I last talked to him this week. So um, it's amazing sometimes, just a bit of education, how that, that can come along. And now he's really not, I'm not worried about him. You know, I was, I was quite worried about him last week. And um, he, he's sleeping better. He's happy. He had a little bit of positive, in, you know, input because of that. His mood's coming up. And so now he'll be willing to maybe even go further later. But we've gotten him out of risk. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And um, 
you know, we, we do have a couple other questions uh, about alcohol, but perhaps we can save them till the end. Yeah, and, we'll um, go on to opioids I'm sure, now. <laughs> I'm sure people want to hear about opioids, uh, okay. so I'll leave you to talk about that. Okay, so we'll just push on. And again, Annabelle and I will stay a half an hour extra for questions. So we just, um, and I'm, I'm going to talk mainly about opiate use disorder, but I do want to start a little bit also just on chronic pain. Uh, as well. So I'm going to integrate both into this next talk. So the issues around opioids when it comes to COVID-19 is that we want to ensure a stable supply of medication for both chronic non-cancer pain uh, as well as people with substance use disorder. So with chronic non-cancer pain, longer prescriptions with part fills um, and bubble packing of medications can be helpful. We want to help keep these patients out of clinics and out of hospitals. We want to prevent withdrawal and allow for a steady supply of unadulterated medication and get as many people with opiate use disorder as possible off non-medical opioids, so off street opioids and onto prescribed oral opioids. Our number one opioid we want them on, if we can, is buprenorphine because we can give, we can give up to two months supply dispensed every two weeks. Methadone is the next um, medication of choice, and then slow-release oral morphine is the third. We want to help transition people who are injecting, either uh, street injecting uh, non-medical supply or on injectable opiate agonist therapies. We want to try to transition them over to the oral route, because even going in and getting injectable hydromorphone or injectable heroin in a supervised setting with nurses present still puts you at risk to be in a close contact with all these other people. And people often have to go in three or four times a day. And this kind of thing is just too much in this quarantine environment. We want to assist people with their social needs, their housing, and safety in harm reduction um, methods that we know of. And we've, there's been some alterations in the Canada, um, in Health Canada's um, Controlled Drug and Substances Act. So these are temporary exemptions for prescribing during this pandemic. So now um, this, these exemptions permit pharmacists to extend prescriptions and give emergency support. They're not allowed to change the dose, but they can extend without the, physician, uh, uh, without the physician's permission. They also can transfer uh, uh, prescriptions between pharmacies instead of it only being able to stay at one pharmacy. They can de deliver controlled medications when it's safe to do so without permission of the physician. And this allows the staff to stay safe and the patient to stay safe, especially if they're under strict quarantine, if they have symptoms. Also, this permits providers to give verbal or fax orders. And then in British Columbia, the negotiation with the College of Pharmacists was that the College of Pharmacists wanted uh, a hard copy follow-up. So you put that in the mail or you courier it over or you walk it over to the pharmacy if it's in your area. So these are the changes that have happened to Health Canada's exemptions on Controlled Drug and Substances Act. Now, other tips about prescribing in the pandemic, other changes that may help you is you can do home induction onto buprenorphine with like a two-week bubble pack. The BCCSU has a nice protocol on their website for that. So do that training at the BCCSU website and you can look at that protocol. We've given you some links. For stable patients, um, buprenorphine naloxone can be written for two months, part fill every two to three weeks, as I was saying, bubble packing. Just don't end it on a weekend. For slow-release oral morphine, you want to emit that 
sprinkle order because it takes more time and also the pharmacist is handling the medication even with gloves. It's, it just uh, takes longer. So you want to reduce that face-to-face -face time. And with methadone, you can extend take-home doses or reduce the uh, witnessed ingestion for stable patients. If the patient still has lots of other drugs going on and you think that they may harm themselves with this, that's not a good idea, but you have to weigh risks and benefits for exposure. Also, where their pharmacy is, how triggered they'd be, all that. If using on top of their opiate agonist therapy and you've tried increasing the dose and that has not worked, the person is still chipping away with heroin or fentanyl, this is a very risky situation for them. So just for these next number of weeks or months during the pandemic, the BC Center on Substance Use has, um, with stakeholder buy-in from the College of Physicians and Surgeons and others, has said that you could consider adding hydromorphone 8 milligram tablets for take-home injection if they kept injecting on top, a maximum of seven per day, you'd titrate them up. And for people who haven't come into care, that's also a possibility. There's a whole hour-long webinar that was just given on that topic uh, in the last 48 hours, Christy Sutherland and Rupi Brar. And again, the link is on the BCCSU website, which we'll give at the end if you're more interested in that detail. But I think for the vast majority of people across the province, that we need to try to get them onto Suboxone if we can as the most stable medication that they have the least likelihood of overdosing. And if it does get diverted, it has the least risk of harm to the community in terms of overdose. These are some prescribing resources to get all of those um, issues related to the changes for the College of Pharmacists and the College of Physicians and Surgeons we have there. And then the BCCSU uh, link for everything related to the changes in COVID, including the webinar and safer supply. Now to know that it's typically not an emergency to have to opiate taper. So the stress in a pandemic is likely not the best time to taper off opioids if you're on for pain or for addiction unless your supply is going to get disrupted or you have safety sensitive work or the patient asks, like I had a patient today, even though I went on and on and on about how they should stay stable on their dose during the pandemic, she had pain and addiction issues that are all really nicely controlled right now on four milligrams four, three times a day of, of uh, Suboxone, of buprenorphine naloxone. And she wants to come off now. And, you know, I have lots of trepidation, but she's in a stable uh, living situation. She doesn't have access to supply right now. She, she just thinks this is the time to do it. This is when she wants. And we went on about it. But, you know, ultimately it is her choice. So what I'm suggesting is that for the next two months, the prescription will still say uh, four milligrams a day. And I gave her instruction on how to try to taper that down. And she'll have control over doing it herself, but she can always go back up if she needs to so her supply won't be disrupted. As an outpatient, most patients with chronic non-cancer pain can drop 5 to 10% every one to two weeks, sometimes slowing down to two to every two to four weeks in the last 20 to 30%. Some people will need much slower if they've been on a long time. But again, most of the time right now, it's stability that we want. Faster tapering can happen if we opiate rotate or use adjuvant medications. Those tapering strategies would be converting to long-acting opiates and taper, tapering with short-acting opioids, doing withdrawal management, and I have a slide on that, or opiate substitution, rotation, and tapering. All of this is for chronic non-cancer pain. This is a nice slide that can show uh, a, a um, decision tree that you can make around that uh, using buprenorphine uh, naloxone for chronic non-cancer pain, uh, even though it's not uh, Health Canada approved for that. It is a medication that has as much or better 
uh, analgesic effect as morphine. So we do, and it's much, uh, 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 people have uh, less chance of overdose. So this is a decision tree around uh, when to switch over and then help taper it down. People often have a better withdrawal. Um, just to move on to people with opiate use disorder, um, uh, a woman who is, has a life experience like this, you can see in the time of a COVID-19 pandemic that um, she would um, have elevated risk for contact if she's having to do sex trade in order to earn her money for her drug. Um, sometimes um, if she's having trouble finding veins, which isn't her particular problem, but other people can assist or she can assist others. People can share rigs. Um, uh, obviously, um, this is a high-risk uh, situation, especially if she has homelessness. And even if she's living in a single-room occupancy, an SRO, food security is an issue, bathroom cleanliness, kitchen cleanliness, contact with others, it's all an issue. So we're trying, there are places, um, some of the hotels have opened up in Vancouver that are now taking people off the street to house them uh, with the help of the government. Uh, there's many outreach programs, and you'd want to help uh, shelter uh, a woman in this situation. So the decision tree around opiate use disorder, we have psychosocial interventions, counseling, peer support, residential, and recovery houses. In the medication-assisted uh, treatments, we have opiate agonist therapies, which is uh, uh, methadone, buprenorphine is actually first line, uh, slow-release oral morphine, and injectable opiate agonist therapy with heroin and um, uh, hydromorphone, and then we have antagonist treatment with uh, oral naltrexone and injectable naltrexone. We won't be talking about those today because oral, um, uh, there's some issue whether you might increase your risk of overdose if your receptors are all washed off because people intermittently take it, and the injectable is not readily available right now in Canada. So we just won't cover those for this disorder. They are good treatments for alcohol use disorder, especially if someone has alcohol and opiate use disorder and they, can, they want an abstinence-based treatment, those are good treatments, but we won't focus on them right now. Uh, for those who have an opiate use disorder who are highly physiologically dependent and they're using high-dose opiates, these are the following protocols I want to share. So there's buprenorphine protocols. It comes in patch, sublingual tablets, and a new injectable formulation in Canada. Injectable formulation hopefully will be paid for very soon on formulary. <clears throat> the patch is not paid for by for on formulary, but for those who can afford it, it can be a good bridging tool, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, you no longer need methadone exemption to get your buprenorphine exemption, so uh, you, you can do additional training online, the BCCSU website. We do recommend that. Buprenorphine, as I said, is currently off-label for pain but there's lots of evidence and it's used a lot by pain doctors. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> it's a talking cough, not a COVID cough. So we have a couple of withdrawal scales. The cow scale, clinical opiate withdrawal scale, is a clinical scale administered by health professionals. <coughs> so usually a cow score, Above 13, you can initiate medication, either a clonidine protocol or a buprenorphine protocol. Um, I've given you a website to link to that. Also, the BCCSU has um, linked to that. There's also a SOW score, which is the Subjective Opiate Withdrawal Scale. 
And that's a patient-administered scale. We have patients do this house for themselves and to know when they can do a home initiation of Suboxone. Um, uh, you can see 1 to 10 mild, 11 to 20 is moderate withdrawal, and severe is 21 to 30. So scout, scout scores above 11, you can initiate some medication. And I've given you um, a link to the SAUS uh, um, check sheet. Also, the BCCSU has one. I just found the one I've included here is a little bit easier because it's over time. You can fill it out. Now, this is the classic induction that's on the BCCSU website. You stop all opiate agonists, wait 12 to 24 hours, ensure the person's in withdrawal. They're recommending a SAUS score quite high of 17. And then you start a 4-milligram test dose. If there's no precipitated withdrawal, you give 2 milligrams every two to four hours until symptoms abate max eight the first day. If they're a fentanyl user, you might go as high as 16. The second day, um, you'd give everything from the first day dose and then two milligrams every two to four hours until the symptoms abate maximum 16. If a fentanyl user, you may go up to 24. Repeat the third day up to, um, up to 24 milligrams usually. And maintenance dose once daily thereafter. Occasionally, you'd go higher. Now, I've modified. Uh, this regime for what I do typically. Again, this is anecdotal. I just wanted to share that usually I will stop the full mu agonist and apply a buprenorphine transdermal patch if they can afford it, a 20 microgram patch. This is not for just low opiate using pain patients. This is for people with opiate use disorder who are high dose users, okay? So that butrans patch goes on overnight. And what it does is as the uh, full mu agonist that they're on dissociates and reassociates to the receptor. The buprenorphine gets in there because it has a high binding affinity, um, binding capacity and high affinity for the receptor. Then the next morning, um, you would start that buprenorphine induction at a really low dose. So if you don't have a butrans patch or they can't afford it, then you can use just a quarter of a two milligram tablet. So um, just, or uh, just 0.25 milligrams. Then, then the, um, so it's actually like an eighth of that tablet, just a tiny bit. Then the next day you start your induction, and I use just 0.5 milligrams of buprenorphine, wait an hour. If there's no precipitated withdrawal, then I'll give one milligram, wait an hour. If no precipitated withdrawal, then I'll continue with that standard induction, starting at two milligrams every two to four hours, up to eight or 16, depending on how high, and then the next day the same. So this, this is I rarely get precipitated withdrawal when I do this. Here's a review, a really nice review, Dr. Gosh and colleagues, uh, including our Puya Azar, who was one of our fellows, um, and our friend Rob Tengue, uh, published this lovely study looking at all the different novel methods to transition from methadone or other full mu agonists over onto uh, Suboxone, to buprenorphine naloxone. So this there's many, many protocols in here, and I'd suggest you read that if that's what you're interested in knowing to do. And just to know that we do have buprenorphine on injection, and the, the good part about that in a pandemic is that you just give one, uh, one dose, then a month later another dose. These are the loading doses at 300 milligrams, and then a maintenance dose of once a month. And so they can stay out of the pharmacy, out of pharmacy deliveries, and you know that they have their medication on board. And so it's much safer, and there's no risk of diversion. You do have to register and do a bit of training in order to do that. With methadone, most of you would be familiar, most familiar with methadone. 
Um, once daily dosing to eliminate withdrawal. If they're a pain patient, sometimes you dose multiple times a day, but many patients are actually just treating their withdrawal pain, so once daily is often good enough. Um, if you're going to admit somebody to a detox center or to a hospital, you want to lower their dose by about 25% and give that 25% as PRN doses because sometimes in new settings, people have lower opiate requirements. That's true in humans and animal models. OAT for patients failing buprenorphine and methadone, we do have slow-release oral morphine with once daily witnessed ingestion usually, typically no take-home doses, but there can be exceptions for really stable patients during the pandemic. And also injection uh, IOT, we talked about transitioning people over during the pandemic to um, slow-release oral morphine or methadone, and some of them eventually may even transition to, to buprenorphine. So I've, I've included one slide on symptom management. This is the classic clonidine protocol for people who cannot be prescribed opiates for some reason or decline them and they go into withdrawal and you need to manage them. So there's a, um, a tapering of clonidine that you see there, some gabapentin, trazodone, loperamide, dimenhydrinate, ibuprofen, and acetaminophen. All of these things treat the various withdrawal uh, aspects of opiate withdrawal. And of course, not to forget naloxone, take-home naloxone kits, nasal or injectable naloxone kits are given to people both who are prescribed opiates for pain or for addiction. Everybody needs to have one at home. This is a very important safety thing. 50% of the time it's used on somebody other than the patient. You need to train the patients and people living with them. And it can uh, save their life in an overdose, obviously, and um, find out what's available in your area. So I just want to run through quickly some of the resources. So this is Again, I, because it's so important, I included this slide once uh, a second time for the College of Pharmacists and the BC Center on Substance Use COVID-19 Response. This is NIDA's website for uh, everything related to COVID-19. This is the Rapid Access Addiction Clinic. You can always call an addiction medicine doctor in Vancouver, Victoria, or Surrey from anywhere in the province to get advice on managing your patients. So please use this resource. There's the Rapid Access Consultive uh, Experience, the uh, Sorry, the um, <clears throat> rapid access addiction clinics are places to refer. The race line, which I've given there for local calls and toll-free calls throughout the province, these uh, are where you get somebody on the phone to talk and an addiction medicine specialist can help you. There's OAT clinics accepting new referral patients that I've listed here, overdose outreach teams, which Annabelle was talking about, uh, which I've listed here in the phone number. There's drug and alcohol information and referral line that's out 24 hours through the Lower Mainland and Province. There's Inform Line, 24-hour service for Vancouver Coastal Health and Fraser Health. The Red Book Online, so you can look through the whole thing yourself if you want, if you don't want to call somebody. Access Central, which would be like Vancouver and Cordova detoxes, and they can refer you. They usually have to call back. <clears throat> Alcoholics Anonymous is gone virtual. So anywhere in Canada, you could always find meetings by typing in www the name of your city plus aa.ca. So in Vancouver, you can see what it is on the screen here. Now if you click on that, it will also tell you where all the virtual meetings are. And you, the patient can go to that site, go into, and click on a virtual meeting and join. Greater Vancouver Family Services um, is another resource, the Center for Concurrent Disorders, and all of the CHCs have drug and alcohol counselors. They do SMART, Matrix, one-on-one, -on -one, and can refer to residential treatment. I've given you some other online resources, both for the BCCSU, uh, for families, 
and also the Bounce Back program, free online for stress, mild to moderate anxiety and depression. Also, Yoga with Adrian, I just included that. It's, a, it's free online yoga and meditation, which is, can be very helpful in people's homes when they can't get out to exercise. And if they have more money, Beachbody.com and other, other uh, uh, online access like this. I just gave it as an example, hundreds of workouts for 99 bucks a year. There's lots of apps like Headspace, free CBTI for insomnia, et cetera, that patients can use. Some more resources about working with vulnerable populations and um, uh, more of the BCCSU's uh, website. Here's some examples of publicly funded treatment facilities, most of which are still operating. There's First Nations treatment facilities, recovery houses, wet, dry, damp shelters, and out-of-province resources when things are really tough, especially for physicians who are in uh, hot, hot water with their substance use and need some support. The Homewood in Guelph, Ontario does concurrent eating disorder, substance use disorder, and has a, a very high-end uh, health professions program. The Bellwood also focusing on sexual addiction, gambling addiction. Um, usually you need to have a letter written to get into those. Uh, by an addiction doc, but you could always apply or ask um, one of your addiction colleagues. And here's some more uh, of the references behind what we were talking about, as well as the ones that are embedded in the talk. So hopefully in this talk, we've been able to highlight the key issues regarding alcohol and opiates, uh, while physical distancing in the COVID-19 pandemic, review assessment and treatment protocols adapted for telemedicine, and to list temporary changes in the National and D.C. Provincial Controlled Substances Act explore online resources for patients and clinicians. So we'll stay for another half hour um, for uh, further questions. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lynette and Annabelle. And um, as Lynette said, um, the, this ends the um, formal part of the presentation. However, we are going to stay on for another 30 minutes to answer any questions, and there's a number of them. And um, sort of wish, uh, I'm sure many of you do, that having Lynette and Annabelle in your back pocket would be a very nice thing. Um, <laughs> certainly one question that's uh, come up um, is that, and I've heard as well, that um, there may be a problem with the street drug supply, uh, especially with the issues with transportation, obviously, uh, being interrupted. And um, should we be expecting to see a, an increase in patients, do you think, going through withdrawal? as the drug supply coming into this country is uh, hampered by COVID-19? Yes, we've definitely seen a, 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 the street supply take a hit. Um, uh, with that, of course, we see an increase in prices. And with that, not only are people um, not able to get their normal amounts of uh, drugs, but also there's likely going to be an increase in crime and violence associated with um, that. Uh, setting. So that's um, very concerning, obviously. It does mean that it's an opportune time for some people to engage in treatment, however, uh, and we should be absolutely trying to improve access for everybody to um, uh, opiate agonist therapy treatments. And as Lon has already said, there's lots of ways of doing that, um, but certainly we've got rapid access clinics and uh, community health centres, etc. And um, calls if people actually are able to get to family practitioners or um, uh, walk-in clinics if um, that's their only point of access. 
than um, using the race line or um, uh, other, other resources for phoning up and, and getting help. One thing I think maybe uh, that we didn't mention was there is now a pandemic prescribing hotline in addition to the race line. And I think that number would be on the BCCSU website. That's very new. <clears throat> Thanks. I also wanted to add that sometimes the opposite occurs. There's um, evidence around the world that sometimes when there's like an earthquake or other uh, natural disasters where drug supplies are cut off, that actually uh, overdoses decrease during those times sometimes. So it just depends on the area and what the supply is and if the supply can come in but is tainted or if the supply doesn't come in. So sometimes, uh, like Annabelle said, this can be a time that people will seek treatment or that people, most people who stop drugs stop on their own one day anyway without, you know, um, they have a higher rate of stopping if they have support. But a, a lot of people ultimately will stop their, whatever they're using, cold turkey at some point. Um, so I think we do need to consider that as well. Um, but there is that whole webinar on uh, safe, safe supply prescribing that uh, I mentioned earlier that Christy uh, Sutherland and Rupi um, uh, ha have put together. So that's on the BCCS website. I gave you the link. Okay. And, and there is a question here, and it's quite intriguing, about um, what about um, uh, recommendations you might have for people that are incarcerated or um, isolated in a, in a quarantine? Uh, how would you go about managing that? Um, I'll just start um, just for one sec. Uh, I have a friend who's working in a prison in uh, Ontario, and she went in and viewed what's going on in terms of how the medications are being given out. Um, and it, uh, there's a lot of protocols that could be tightened up, I think, within the prison from what she's telling me that could reduce the risk of spread. Um, so I think that uh, all institutions, it behooves them to go in and have a lens, especially bring in um, a doctor who knows infectious disease or public health and that can view it with an outside lens to see what kinds of things can be done to help, to help uh, reduce the risk of spread. Also, um, starting to release people who, who are near the end of their sentence or who have not done violent crime or who are awaiting just uh, uh, sentencing. You know, these kind of things sometimes can be released into the community, uh, not things, humans can be released into the community uh, while they await so that they're not at risk. Annabelle? Um, yeah, so that's speaking to incarcerated. I think there might be a role too for the injectable um, form of um, buprenorphine in um, those settings. Again, you, you um, avoid the risk of diversion and, and using the buprenorphine uh, in the um, uh, in non-prescribed ways. So that's one thing. But speaking to the um, uh, enforced quarantine for people, uh, for those that are COVID positive, we haven't really spoken much about people that actually are COVID positive and are in these settings of perhaps still unstable in their substance use disorder, yet on um, opiate agonist therapy. So here the prescribing guidelines have been loosened significantly and we are able to and should um, uh, prescribe um, OAT for deliveries and um, probably um, carries, really loosen up on the carries like weekly dispense. Um, of course, always trying to make sure that that's as safe as possible, but um, often that's going to be what it takes for people to effectively um, self-isolate. And I've heard, it's not a question that came up in the list, but it's certainly a question I've heard 
uh, asked, especially as it relates to increased risk of people who are cigarette smokers and, and the COVID being a respiratory virus, any comment to marijuana smokers or people that are vaping with nicotine or other substances in relation to any risks they might have with COVID? Mm-hmm. Um, well, obviously, we don't know definitely, but surely that there is a theoretical risk that um, any form of inhalation, smoking or vaping, yeah, may well increase your susceptibility to uh, becoming infected or maybe having um, worsened uh, consequences of that infection. So again, whatever we can do to help people to um, reduce their smoking or stop their smoking and vaping, so um, switching over to products that are oral, and of course we can do that with um, uh, cannabis, um, certainly, and, and then we also have the Sativex uh, nasal spray. I don't know if there's any push towards having that made um, available as full benefit coverage for people, but that would be an option. Um, and then, of course, nicotine replacement therapy um, for uh, those that um, are nicotine dependent. And just be aware that, you know, often we, we, we think that a 21 milligram patch a day is the max that we can go to. We often go to two patches or even three patches a day to help people um, to be able to quit fully. And just so everyone knows, uh, I did include as a handout a, a more extensive talk that I give, usually at the St. Paul's CME in the as an evening presentation, a two-hour presentation that includes uh, protocols for all substances. So, uh, and I've tried to update them for kind of COVID. So that is a handout that you can go through and see some of the medications Annabelle was mentioning there. Um, so we go through, um, I- including um, a little bit on cannabis. The the other issue about vaping is that the lung failures that they had, particularly the ones that were seen in the United States. of the kids who were vaping nicotine who had lung failure were also vaping uh, cannabis. And they were wondering if it's the, uh, some of the oil that was used as a vehicle to um, have the cannabinoids in that was causing some of the trouble or if it's the cannabinoids themselves, they don't know. Uh, So there was this association. It's not a proven thing, but it's an association. So again, it can add to risk. That's useful, thank you, and and I hope that that's something that we can um, really highlight to our patients that this is as much a challenge to get off these things that it's really an opportunity to be motivated to want to get off them in there. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple questions, uh, just very quickly. Um, you had mentioned an acronym, CHC. Oh, sorry, Community Health Center. Ah, thank you, and. Um, there was a question about that. what do we anticipate will happen to after the safe supply uh, interim guidelines are removed post-COVID, um, especially with people that have been using a opioid substitute or another opioid such as hydromorphone post-COVID? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know yet. What I do know is that um, safe supply guidelines were being thought about and developed way before COVID came along. So there has been um, a lot of uh, support for moving forward with this idea anyway. Um, I think that, you know, my personal opinion is that the the restrictions and physical distancing requirements are going to be going on for a very long time, um, you know, months to even longer. And um, so there is, you know, some, I, we'll certainly get a, a, a good sense of 
um, the uh, the benefits of safe supply for, for people that have um, refractory substance use disorders that haven't responded to other treatments, but also the consequences of this, which may be more far-reaching. So I think it's really important that we monitor um, both the successes and the negatives associated with this going forward so that then decisions can be made longer term um, about the benefits or not. Um, one, of, one of the problems from my perspective is that Safe Supply is putting it back on doctors to prescribe when perhaps really this is something much, you know, beyond just, you know, a health intervention from health, health um, uh, practitioners and prescribers and that, you know, speaks more to um, uh, access to uh, safe drugs outside of prescription. And if we look at um, the Portuguese experience, they didn't have to go to a safe supply, that kind of route, or even um, uh, they don't even have injection sites, but they really massively brought down their opiate overdose rates and incarceration rates by going to a treatment model. So making treatment fully available, screening people who uh, are found with substances, seeing if they have uh, substance use disorders, and supporting their full treatment with medications up to a year, and even residential if they need it, and then helping them into the workforce. So uh, paying 50% of their salaries if they get jobs, so it, it put them um, from people who are least likely to be employed to most likely to be employed, helping them with housing, helping them with medical care. And that way they helped, in a very loving way, inclusive way, transforming society. Uh, so we all, we do know what happened with, in the United States, uh, the whole, oxycodone and opiate crisis when opioids were given to people who, uh, to help them not have uh, street use or because they were in pain. So we need to, uh, we do know what happened with the whole opiate uh, ramp up after that. So we don't know if we provide this safe supply, though we may be helping people in the short term, will it cause long-term harms in this setting? We don't know yet. It might be positive, it might be negative. It is an experiment. There's a really practical question here. Um, uh, what are you doing about urine screens during these times? So I think that, you know, it's, it's great to have access to urine drug screening as part of a comprehensive assessment. Sometimes that's just not going to be possible, you know, with telehealth. Sometimes we still can. We can, we can have um, uh, outreach workers or peer support workers to help us with that. But a lot of the times we're going to need to forego that. Um, so just another challenge uh, for us in our assessment capabilities, I think. And um, the uh, American Society of Addiction Medicine and NIDA have both uh, mentioned that they're not requiring urine drug testing anymore in this setting when people need to self-isolate. At the same time, uh, if people do have to go to the lab for other reasons and they need blood work or something, you can request a urine drug screen also at a lab. Thank you. And a um, question that came to the top, and I think you've already answered this, but I, I'll just pose it again. What patients are eligible for methadone carries and other take-home drug supplies that are now being provided? Um, so anybody that's COVID positive at risk of um, uh, contracting the infection. And um, yeah, so they're the two main things. That really includes many, many of our patients. So I think that we are, you know, we are much more um, supported in providing carries for patients um, in many, many settings now. 
And again, you know, I think it should be a, a case by case assessment and decision made um, with balancing the risks on both sides. Okay, thank you. And certainly um, methadone has a lot more risk of overdose than, um, uh, and we're seeing sleep apnea and all sorts of other side effects and interaction with medications, many more medication interactions than something like buprenorphine. So we really, really try to get people over onto buprenorphine if we can. And again, if that's diverted, there's much less likelihood that you're going to injure another person. Okay. There's some practical questions here. Um, when uh, a couple people have asked, um, have any of you, have either of you tried to cut a quarter or an eighth of a tablet, a two milligram tablet of uh, buprenorphine naloxone? Um, they found in their experience the tablets crumble. Any suggestions? Yeah, you can still put the crumbles in your mouth. That's okay. So you just divide it up as much. Yeah, as I mean, it's not a perfect yeah. solution. If if they can, you know, if we could only get patch, you know, fent, uh, sorry, buprenorphine patches on formulary, um, it, it's fantastic. If they can afford it, it's such an easy uh, way to go. But uh, if you can't, then you use what you have. Okay. And. Um, and another question on um, the discussion you'd have with someone um, to encourage transition from methadone, and I, I think you've already spoken to that this may not be the time to do that, but to encourage the transition from methadone to buprenorphine naloxone um, during these times, would you even attempt that or leave it well enough alone? I think if you have, um, if that's what the patient wants and, and together you decide that um, th that's what they would like, then I think it's, 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 it's quite doable, particularly with doing our technique of micro-induction, which can be done as quickly or as, as slowly as um, the patient wants to. So even from high-dose methadone, we do have success with switching people over uh, to Suboxone. Um, we can minimise uh, time in... Uh, pharmacy settings by blister packing the whole um, uh, micro-induction at a week at a time. And uh, the other thing is that sometimes we can take patients off methadone and switch them to something like um, slow-release oral morphine, um, giving time for the methadone to wash out and then do um, a, a micro-induction onto or a regular induction onto suboxone. So there's many, many ways of doing it. And I think that uh, reference that you gave um, uh, helped, helped us a lot with that. Annabelle, do you want to just explain what the term microinduction means? Okay. Yeah, for those who don't know, so the traditional way of doing a, a suboxone induction or buprenorphine induction, Lonette uh, spoke to us about, you've got to stop all your opiates for 12 to 24 hours and then uh, ramp up fairly quickly on the buprenorphine. With a microinduction, we just give baby doses. And Bruce, that's what you're alluding to, that quarter of a tab that we start on, a quarter of a tab twice a day, half a tab the next day, one tablet the next day, and gradually building up the, the buprenorphine blood levels until you're at a therapeutic dose of 12 milligrams. But during that process, you keep going with the opiate agonist, so either the methadone or the KDN or even the illicit opiate use, whilst gradually sneaking that buprenorphine onto the receptors, so thus avoiding a precipitated acute withdrawal. And then once they're at um, full dose, then you can just stop the, the full agonist. 
Thanks. So the article that I referenced for you has all of these different techniques in it if you're interested. Great. And there's probably just enough time to ask some specific cases, if that's okay with you. Um, one says that I have a client coming in asking for a prescription of stimulants. He's already on methadone for opioid addiction, but still uses cocaine plus speed daily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What options might there be for this? Okay, so that comes under the, the new safe supply guideline, guidelines. And um, there's, a, there's a lengthy document of about 17 pages which talks in detail about um, uh, how to do safe supply. And then there's a, just a, a, a briefer document, I think five pages long or something, on, on safe supply. So I'd encourage you to look at that. It's easily downloadable from the BCCSU website. So what's happened now is that um, uh, it's my understanding that all formulations of both slow release and um, longer acting um, uh, uh, stimulants are now covered for under the safe supply guidelines and so that we can prescribe them for our patients. So again, case by case decision. If this patient that you have is going out and having to um, procure cocaine or methamphetamine uh, on, a, on a regular basis, um, a daily basis, then and putting themselves at risk of uh, exposure to COVID, um, then if they can um, uh, reduce the amount of uh, having to go and acquire other drugs by taking a regular supply, a regular prescription, uh, Ritalin or Concerta or um, uh, any of the others, then, um, you know, that's, that's likely a um, harm reduction uh, approach that might be helpful. I think the key to this is um, following up with the patient, having a relationship with the patient, and making sure the prescriber is able to provide is in an ongoing relationship with them and, and able to provide that follow up. That makes sense. Also, yeah. to let the patient know that this is a is temporary, and after the pandemic uh, protocols, this will be tapered down and off. So this is not a free license forever. Mm -hmm. Again, it's not a substance use treatment because, no. you know, we don't have good evidence for, we don't have, you know, it is not supported in the literature currently that this is a treatment, but it may well be helpful in, in achieving our goals of um, physical distancing. And I think we have time for one more case, um, and this is probably applicable to many situations, but specifically, um, there's a, this uh, person that has a patient uh, with a cocaine use history, um, has attended rehab in the past, has returned to work, and is on random monitoring program. Is doing good, quite well for the last three months, but testing isn't available right now during this. Suggestions? Well, um, again, oh, my no. Yep. No, um, <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, you, um, again, this um, uh, physician obviously has a, uh, an ongoing relationship with the, with the patient and uh, I think that, you know, going on history and looking for other signs of destabilisation or relapse to drug use, we don't always just rely, uh, particularly on random urinary drug screens, they're random and they're infrequent, so, so just being maybe a little more uh, alert to the other um, uh, red flags or telltale signs that, that uh, someone is going off track, perhaps. Thanks, Annabelle. And, and, we're, and, we're getting... and you can look, you know, if they've dilated pupils and they're really accelerated and, 
you know, they're sniffing. I mean, there's lots of uh, kind of small things if they're using uh, a lot that you, you're not going to be able to pick up. And for some people, this will be kind of like the cats away, the mice will play kind of time. And for others, it's a time to really uh, have a lot of introspection and really do well with their recovery. It depends on the person. You know, and I think that speaks to the importance of uh, using video conferencing where possible um, rather than phone. Uh, being able to see uh, is worth a thousand words in there of what's going on. We're approaching the end, but I, I wonder if I, either or both of you have some uh, last words that you'd like to pass on to our audience. Lynette? Well, I just want to say thank you. I, um, I really appreciate all the people who signed in and taken some of their time, and I hope it's useful. Annabelle? Yeah, I just, and especially on the back of that last question, I think that, you know, we're all living in very stressful times, and we know that stress is a risk factor for relapse. For, for people that are, for those that are in recovery and can be a precipitating factor to returning to use, even just intermittent use. So, so to be really um, uh, mindful of that and, and to help our patients to increase their psychosocial supports and those things that have helped them um, uh, previously at times of stress to reduce that risk of relapse. Maybe we need to adjust their medication. They might need to increase on their opiate agonist therapy. Say they've been tapering down and they're on 8 or 12 milligrams of buprenorphine. Maybe they need to go back up to 16 again during this time and then come back down again. And also to, to um, screen for and help patients to manage their mental health symptoms that might be associated with all of this. Thank I you. also just wanted to add, just um, to remind uh, the healthcare providers that there are supports for healthcare providers as well who also are under added stress and may uh, have uh, a higher chance of substance use disorder under this setting. So there's the physician health program that can be accessed and the nurses have support programs as well. So just to reach out if needed. Well, I'd really like to express my sincere gratitude to uh, Lynette and Annabelle for taking their time um, to talk with you tonight and uh, from especially from your very busy lives and heavy critical clinical duties uh, and also to stay around and answer our questions tonight. And I'm sure that all our, myself and the audience really appreciated it. I also want to, to thank everybody uh, that stayed and was online uh, for attending and I hope this session was of value to you. Um, please, when you sign out, take a few minutes to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you in order to obtain the study credit and to provide your feedback for tonight's webinar. And finally, I thought that you might also want to know that about some other webinars that we're offering over the next week in the COVID-19 webinar series. On April 14th will be the COVID-19 update number three, Ask Emergency and Critical Care Specialist with Omar Ahmed Adam Thomas, Mario uh, Francis uh, Paragasam, and other guest speakers. And then on April 16th, there'll be Pediatrics in the Age of COVID-19 with Ryan Goldman and other guest speakers. And I wanted to thank everybody and wish you a good night and a very safe holiday long weekend. And I hope everybody gets rest and stays well. Good night, everybody. Thanks, Bruce. Good night, and thank you, Bruce. Good night. Thank you.
I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's Metamorphosis, spelt M-E-D. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 